This week in Arsenal, the Gunners stroll to a win at Fulham, Leandro Trossard breaks records, Gabriel Jesus has risen, and a win-or-go-home Europa League tie awaits. Let's get into it. Maybe we'll have a good surprise for you. Welcome in to episode 8 of This Week in Arsenal. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Sham, and um, you know we've got a lot to talk about today. Obviously, we're, we're going to touch on the, the sporting game from, from Thursday night and what happened there. And then, of course, we're going to talk about our very, I don't want to say comfortable, but definitely a commanding 3-0 victory away at Fulham. And, um, you know, all the things that go into that, obviously, we're going to talk about some of the key performances, the return of a certain biblical figure, and things of that nature. But uh, before we get into that, as always, I am joined by Sash. Sash, how are you, my friend? Could not be any better after the masterclass we witnessed yesterday. Can't wait to discuss it. You know, um, so in the States, we just... um, sprung forward because we um we're still doing that that absolute nonsense that we that we call daylight savings and daylight spending time although i I think this might be the last year or it might be the second to last year we do it so we'll see our our long national nightmare is literally almost over but um yeah so i (laughs) I almost botched the recording time for this, so thankfully we we uh, we got it going. But yeah, on uh, the bright we... side, on the bright side, the difference in time is only five hours between both of us. So I guess that's more convenient for you. I guess that does. Yeah, mm-hmm. it does make it a little easier moving forward. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, because yeah, five hours is definitely better than six hours in terms of planning this <laughs> out. But yeah, we'll see. Um, you, the U.S. has been responsible for a lot of. Um, less than smart things and this is this is definitely <laughs> one of them so but uh i digress so we went to craven cottage on sunday and we you know made our way to a three nil victory i think we played really really well especially in that first half the first half might be one of our best performances of the season but yeah, I mean, generally, uh, Sash. Just before we, you know, start breaking things down, how how did you feel about the way we we went about our business, um, especially in the first half, but just overall throughout the match? I think professional is the word that uh, you're looking for. I think we played with incredible quality right from minute one. You know, we really set the tone with how we pressed. You know, the way we were moving the ball in between the lines, absolutely fantastic. And even off the ball, you could really see that there was great commitment from all of our players. And what I liked a lot was that no one was hiding on Sunday. Every player was really brave on the ball in really tight spaces. People will say that Fulham were really bad. And while I agree to a certain degree, 
I think it was Arsenal that was just unbelievable yesterday in build up the way we were taking risks outside our own box right throughout the game it was all coming off for us yesterday and honestly the way we were playing it reminded me of like Wenger ball yesterday because we did not play the usual Arteta way where we would have like two players high and wide holding the width and it was less structured i felt yesterday personally you could see like uh, you must have seen the graph at the end of the game about like how narrow arsenal were right throughout the match and what i really liked was that every player was in sync with each other and it was just beautiful to watch man like yesterday was one of those days where i was like wow i don't want this game to get over i'm having so much fun and yeah incredible day incredible performance especially after all the stress we've been through in recent weeks with the late winners i think yesterday was a return to normalcy and i hope and i really hope that arteta is telling the players that this should be the fogging standards every single week <laughs> what we showed yesterday <laughs> yeah 100% i i think professional is the word that i was looking for and i think that's a great um descriptor for for how we went about uh, managing that game and you know you're right in saying that Fulham I don't think they were bad they they felt a little subdued and I think a lot of that ha- you know is down to the fact that they were without um I believe it was Paulinha yesterday um who's a really big player for him or for them and um you know him not being there I I guess is akin to you know when we don't have party in certain matches yeah. and you know we kind of we suffer in midfield for that and I think with Paulinho there's a there's a bit of a hole that we exploited to great effect right and you know obviously Fulham have some other good players outside of of Paulinho. um you know they have our old friend Baron Leno in goal and you know despite <laughs> his shortcomings on the ball you know he's I think he's you know a pretty high quality shot stopper when you know his head's in it and, yep. um, you know, I think Williams looked pretty good for them. I've been impressed, um, obviously, by uh, by Tete. And then, you know, they have Tim Ream and Anthony Robinson, who uh, are, are two starters in the U.S. men's national team. Um, yeah, and of course, you know, um, Alexander Mitrovic, I think, is a pretty underrated um, player as well. You know, very physical, uh, probably one of the, the best um, aerial duel winners in the league and, you know, offers something up front for them um, on a pretty consistent basis. So, you know, they, they had a good team, nothing to be sniffed at. Entering this match, I was still kind of worried because only Chelsea, um, or sorry, not Chelsea, only United, Newcastle, and Spurs had won away at Fulham before we went there. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I was cautiously optimistic, but Fulham did something that I think really played into our hands, which was, you know, um, it, it was it was the mid-block and the high press that they did. Normally, you mm-hmm. know, and we've unfortunately gotten very, very used to this, uh, we're up against deep blocks a lot of the time, and we have, you know, we have to deal with, you know, nine, 9 to 11 people inside the opposing penalty box, so we have to break down. We have to deal with a lot of physicality, a lot of time-wasting, um, you know, a lot of, um, not not a press, but, you know, a lot of opposing teams trying to roughhouse a little bit and get the ball off of us in midfield or, you know, within their third and spring counterattacks that way. And Fulham didn't yep. really do that. Fulham, Fulham tried to take the game to us. Um, 
you know, they tried to get the ball up the pitch. Um, their defensive shape wasn't super compact. And, um, you know, they were, they were pressing us pretty high at times here. You know, they're pushing, you know, anywhere between two and four players into our, our own third. And um, I think after an initial 15-minute period of feeling them out, I, I think we, we kind of figured out that, um, you know, there's something, there's something there for us to exploit. It, you know, it kind of reminded me of, um, have you ever seen those videos where, um, you know, like a, a, like a golden retriever or some other cute dog that has, like, definitely run through a screen door in the past is standing there? And it's a completely open doorway, and they're just pawing at thin air because they yeah. think the screen door is still there. And the person yeah. behind the camera is like, "No, you can come through." I think we were that golden retriever, just pawing at the thin air and be like, "No, there's 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 a deep block here somewhere, right? There's you know there's uh, there's an uh, there's an Onana in here somewhere, right? Trying to just like shove us off the ball. Oh, there's not. Okay. Well, we'll walk through the doorway and we'll take our three 0 win. So. Um, but yeah, how you know how 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 do you think that um, that allowed us to dominate? I mean, you know, um, in terms of um, getting through the high press and you know the absence of Polina and generally just not having to deal with you know the population of Lithuania inside the penalty box. <laughs> yeah, firstly, I like your golden retriever analogy. I think that makes a lot of sense in this case. But what I also want to say is that Arsenal as a team are a very intelligent team. And I remember watching Sean Dyche's post-match press conference after we beat them 4-0 at the Emirates. And he was speaking about how intelligent our players are in terms of like understanding the full picture of the game. That's the phrase he used. And it's also a phrase that Brendan Rodgers used a couple of weeks back. That the fact that our players know exactly what to do and when. Sometimes the execution doesn't come off, but you can never fault how smart they are, how intelligent they are, and always looking for opportunities uh, to make chances and score. So I think that was very evident, like you said, even against Fulham. And one more thing I want to touch upon is that in some of the games we got shut out in recently, I'm talking Everton away at Goodison Park, I'm talking Brentford at home when we drew uh, I'm also looking at the game against Newcastle in January. I think one theme that was common in all of these three games was the fact that Arsenal were playing Enketia as the striker. And look, I love Eddie Enketia. I really always backed him. But I think having a player like that up front and having a runner like Martinelli playing on the wing, I think it makes us a little bit predictable. And I think we're going to obviously touch upon this as we go on in the podcast. But I think... Trossard's introduction has totally changed the dynamics of how we attack. I think it's really difficult to actually play a deep block against Arsenal now because we have so many top players who can play in those pockets and make things happen. You have the likes of Trossard, you have Odegaard, you have Xhaka, you have those rotations that Martinelli does moving into the centre-forward position with Trossard now. You have Saka, who sometimes plays in the half space, and Ben White overlaps. Then you have Zinchenko. So I think what we have now is that overload in attack, and we also have that unpredictability because of rotations. And I think any team that sits deep against us is asking for trouble. And I think Bournemouth found that like last week. I know we won the game off the last kick of the match, 
But come on, we dominated that match. We had like 30 shots on goal. So I don't really fault Fulham for trying to press us high in the opening like 15 minutes of the game. I think it's a brave approach. And like, if you ask me what is the best way to play against Arsenal right now with the team that we have with Trossard up front, I would say try to stop our build-up because that's the only way you can stop Arsenal. Because once the ball is played out and we enter the opposition's like middle third and then into the final third, I think our execution is incredible with the players we have. And honestly, it should have been 7-0 or 8-0. And this is, I think, the next step for this group of players to actually start to like finish more chances. Like It's not a criticism. They're really young players. And they're doing incredibly well for the for their age. I just think that this is something that we can go to that next level because I think the quality of our football is definitely worthy of more goals than we're scoring. Having said that, I'll take the three nil scoreline all day long. Fulham are a really good team, competing for a Europa League place, and for Arsenal to go there and play the way we did after a tough Europa League game on Thursday, it tells you everything you need to know about this squad super happy 100 percent, and you know i think i think that's a really good point there about you know how how intelligent this team is you know how how high their football iq is because i i think in the past there's definitely one player coming to mind who i think we have a question about so i'm not going to mention him now but in the <laughs> past we've had several players who weren't really problem solvers on the pitch and I I feel like we have a bunch of those now and yep the thing about having guys like that on the pitch is that they're able to look at what the opposition is giving them and take it and 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 play according to that um so you know guys like Zinchenko and Odegaard and Xhaka um and Party you know uh, basically kind of serve as the um the 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 brain of the operation in a way right but you know yep um i think ramsdale has a really high football iq i think saliba and gabrielle do as well i think white um you know just despite him not watching it uh watching football for fun (laughs) i think also has i think it's so weird that people hold that against them but um, but yeah, you know, I think Ben White has quietly a pretty high one as well. Um, Bukayo Saka, obviously, I think has shown that he's uh, an incredibly intelligent player. You know, so up and down the pitch, you have players who are able to read the game and figure out, you know, what's going on, how the other team are approaching them, and take what the game gives them. And I think that's really, um, really beneficial, you know. And at the end yep. of the day, Arteta can only prepare teams for you know what he thinks is going to happen and he can make you know little tweaks here and there according to what he sees in real time during the game but at the end of the day you know it's the players on the pitch who have to go win it and part of that is you know solving the problem that's in front of them so i think that's an excellent point and you know on on this discussion of you know problem solving i do think kind of like the you know the the engine room is a big part of this. You know, I think mm-hmm. our midfield performed tremendously uh, against yep. Fulham, you know, and again, you know, it was made a little bit easier for us because of 
the absence of Paulina. But nevertheless, you know, I think in particular, Party and Zinchenko and Odegaard, those three um, combined really, really well just to, you know, progress the ball of the pitch, evade, you know, evade the high pressure, um, you know, just generally cut open Fulham and, um, you know, really allow our attacking players to do what they do. So, um, Sash, I mean, how how do you think, or I guess, let me rephrase this, what do you think is so special about, you know, how Party and Zinchenko and Odegaard, and if you want to throw Xhaka into this as well, go ahead, you know, but how... How? What do you think makes that combination of midfielders so special and able to, you know, for the most part, um, overcome any challenge that that they face together? I think the key to the operation is Thomas Partey. For me, he's the best defensive midfielder in the Premier League, um, and I think actually that no one comes close. I think Rodri is pretty good in his own right, and I think what Rodri is really good at is availability. He's a really good player who's always available plays 35-plus games, plays in other competitions. But I think Thomas Partey, when he's at the right level of fitness like he is right now, is incredible. How many midfielders can you name in world football who can play alone in midfield, who can progress the ball the way Thomas Partey does? And because of how good he is defensively, he basically frees up the rest of the team. A guy like Xhaka can play with more freedom with Thomas Partey next to him. Whereas when Jorginho is playing, and look, this is no insult to Jorginho, who I think is a really good player. He's been a really good signing for Arsenal. But to party is just such an anomaly in terms of defensive midfielders. And when someone like Jorginho plays, you, the partner of Jorginho has to be a little bit cognizant of the fact that he has to defend. And I just think from a psychological point of view, when you're freed up, you play with that freedom and you play to like score goals and you can see that with Granit Xhaka when parties on the pitch. I thought yesterday Xhaka was obviously unlucky not to score. I don't know if he passed the ball to Leno because he thought he was still an Arsenal player but you could see basically the movement of some of our midfielders yesterday and even Zinchenko the way he creates that uh, two-man um, two build-up. We do a 3-2 build-up and Zinchenko comes in, fills in in the pivot Xhaka is free to play further forward. I just think Thomas Partey is the glue that holds everyone in this team together. And it's absolutely no coincidence that we have not lost the game still with Thomas Partey in the team. Even the match against Everton, we conceded the goal after he was subbed off. But when he's on the pitch, Arsenal are simply a different entity. And for me, it's so, so important for the next 11 games that we keep this guy fit. Because without Thomas Partey, I genuinely think uh, we are three-fourths the team. Previously, before the arrival of Jorginho, we were half the team. But at least now we have somewhat of a reliable backup. But for the big matches, I really want Partey playing. And look, even in this run that we had where we lost uh, to Man City, I think Thomas Partey was greatly missed in that match. I, I think with him in the team, it's a different story. We at least get a draw out of that game. And as you know, the title race is fine margins. You need your best players fit. And I pray and I pray and I pray that Thomas Partey is available for the next 11 games. Because if he is, I really fancy our chances. It's still so disappointing that Partey wasn't able to, um, you know, be ready for that game. And um, yeah. 
Do you have to Even wonder... the match against uh, United at Old Trafford as well. He was not yep. available for that one. And we lost that one. And yeah, basically the games that we lost this season, he was not there. And without him, it's just not the same, is it? No, no, not at all. And I think that's pretty nuts that... Not necessarily in a bad way, but it's it, it's pretty crazy how much of a difference he makes. You know, I think he is hands down our most important player. Obviously, you know, Saka and Zinchenko are very much in that conversation, but I think at the end of the day, it's it's party by a pretty big margin. And I think I think that's because of his profile, really, and the level to which he, uh, he performs. You have a guy who can operate in a really big space and cover it with authority. Um, but also he has just such immense technical quality on the ball, right? He's he's so good at progressing either through carrying or through passing. Um, you know, very, very, very press resistant. There was that one moment late in the match against Fulham where, you know, he had the ball, he had one he had a Fulham player in front of him, a Fulham player behind him. And, you know, he just basically just turned and got in between them, um, you know, in one very deft move and was off in acres of space. And, you know, he's just such such a complete midfielder in that sense. Um, and it's it's an incredibly rare profile. And I, I think the more we see of him, the more it makes sense and the more understandable it is that you know, Arteta was willing to push the boat out for him like he did. Um, I believe it was in the summer of 2020 now, actually. So, um, yeah, it you know, it just makes more and more sense every time he steps on the pitch why we went to uh, went, the, went on the last day of that transfer window and we paid the release clause and didn't say a word to Atletico Madrid about it. So, um, yeah, excellent player. And I think the way that he combines with Zinchenko is, you know, just, to use a gamer term, so overpowered. <laughs> um, it, it's, it, you know, because you have Party, right, who, like we like we both just said, just such an excellent midfielder. And then next to him, you have Zinchenko, who I, I think for my money is probably one of the most technically gifted players in the world. Um, yep. Just so, so, so good on the ball. Um, really pulls the strings from us, you know, um, Plays left back, but uh, quite honestly, he's just given free license to roam wherever he's needed. So, you know, while Party controls the space, it's it's Zinchenko who the one, who's the one I, I really think pulls a lot of the strings for the team. Sometimes, I think a little bit to our detriment, he does have a tendency to play a little bit of hero ball. Um, <laughs> you know, there, yeah. there are some games where he gets, you know... Um, high 90s or like even in the hundreds in terms of touches which you know um, might be a little bit too much but you know it's just such an, an excellent player um, and you know really gives us a whole new dimension in the way we attack and then you know there's Odegaard as well who you know I think is a very creative player um, you know is pretty consistently now ranking um, as one of the best players in the league for chances created from open play Um had a couple of those, uh, you know, for this game, obviously, where, um, you know, the big one, I think, is that Xhaka chance that, you know, Odegaard just slides over. Uh, I think uh, Trussard dummies it pretty well, and then it's yep. Xhaka in on goal, and, 
Um, yeah, I have no idea what happened there, honestly. I, I, I think Jaka <laughs> was caught in two minds about wanting to hit it first time, maybe like Chip Leno or something, or wanting to, wanting to take it around him. And I think he just got his wires scrambled a little bit. Um, but yeah, uh, but on top of that, you know, Odegaard also, I think giving him the captain's armband has been such a fantastic decision by, by Arteta. And I think it's really motivated him. Because um, yep. Odegaard strikes me as one of those players who, you know, he takes that responsibility really seriously. He steps on the pitch and he's wearing the armband. And I, you know, I think for him, it's just ingrained in his mind now that he has to set the example for everybody, right? As the mm-hmm. as the captain, and he has to be the one who, you know, has the most um, selfless performance on the pitch. Mm-hmm. So you know, in addition to um, you know, being pretty critical to how we operate moving forward. I think the defensive shift that he puts in at Fulham and on a regular basis um, is just so, so good. I mean, he's charging everywhere. He's leading the press. He's dropping back really deep on uh, on defense. Um, you know, he's trying to cut play, uh, trying to cut attacks out. Um, and, you know, I was really impressed, especially on Sunday, because Odegaard did all this while having just come back from being ill, right? Yeah. So, you know, he, I I would be shocked if he was at 100% and he was still doing all that. So, um, yeah, well done to him. I think all three of those guys were excellent yesterday. And, um, you know, Xhaka looked pretty good as well. I think, you know, that left eight role, even though we keep on trying to replace him in it, and I think eventually, you know, I think someone will come along who's able to perform that role. Um, perhaps at a slightly higher level. But I think for now, Jacques is doing uh, a really tremendous job there. And I think it's another smart decision by Arteta to put him there. Because again, you know, Jacques is relieved of having to take on all this defensive responsibility. And, you know, he's he's not he's not getting the ball facing his own goal. He's not getting pressed 30 feet from his own goal and getting into trouble. His job is to progress the ball up the pitch and, you know, help drop back on defense, but he's never going to be the last man anymore, which I think um, has just allowed him to express himself and um, show off his better qualities um, in such a great way. But someone I really want to talk about in addition to those guys is um, someone who hasn't been with the team for very long, arrived a month and a half ago, I would say. And um, that's Leandro Trossard. And yesterday, Trossard had three assists in the first half, which is the first time in history um, a Premier League player has had three assists in the first half of an away match. Very specific stat, but there you go. We're going to be saying a mm-hmm. couple of those today. And then in addition to that, he's also the first player since Santi Gazorla in 2012-2013 to record um, a hat trick of goals and a hat trick of assists in the same season, which, you know, obviously very impressive. So, um, Sash, I'll, I'll hand I'll hand it off to you here. Um, what did you make of Trossard's performance? And on top of that, just you know, how good of a signing has he been for us since he arrived? You know, I said this like when he was signed that Trossard reminds me of one of my favorite Arsenal players that I used to love when I first started supporting the club, and that's Andre Arshavin. 
I think Trussard has so much similarities to him, the way he moves, the way he glides across the pitch, that I instantly fell in love with him as soon as he came on against United. And just like Arshavin, Trussard's technical level is out of this world. I think maybe he's competing closely with Zinchenko and Odegaard as the best technician in the squad. Look, we all knew that he was a good player at Brighton. You have to be a really good player to score a hat-trick at Anfield. But I think Trossard, just like many other players, like even Odegaard in our team, even Xhaka, they're playing their best seasons in their career. You look at even Martinelli, best season in his career so far. So I just think that our team as a whole, they've really raised their level. And I think that's infectious. It's spreading to the rest of the group. And Trossard yesterday did everything that I wanted from a false nine. As a false nine, the first thing you should be able to do is to trap the ball properly. It's to be able to play with your back to goal. It's it's to be able to pick out the right spaces on the pitch to stand in, to receive the ball. And I think Trossard's game IQ, which we touched upon, like the whole team has phenomenal IQ, but I think Trossard basically epitomizes the team. He's so intelligent. He's always in the right places, looking to link up, looking to rotate. And the fluency of some of the combinations, it absolutely baffles me that this is a player that's only been at the club for like two months, two and a half months, probably even less than that. And he has such a good understanding already. Could you imagine how good he's going to be even like in a month to two after a preseason if he's already playing this well? And I think the quality of a good player is to not only play well yourself, but it's to also raise the level of those around you. And I think Trossard does this. You can see Martinelli's game has gone to another level since Trossard played false nine. And right from the time we started dropping points, I was telling you on the spot that we should try Trossard down the middle and he could do what Jesus does, albeit to a slightly lower level. But I actually think Trossard has done really well. I'm not saying he's better than Jesus, but I think he's done certain things that almost mirror what Jesus does. And we're at a stage now where maybe even next week uh, when we're playing at home to Palace, we don't have to be in a position where we have to play Jesus. You know, we can more than more than easily play Trossard down the middle and things will be fine. And that is so important to ensure that there's no drop-off when your so-called first team front three is not there. And I'm telling you, Trossard is here to fight for his place. He's really fighting for his place. Because how can you drop a player that's given three assists in one half? And I'm someone that sometimes ignores things like assists because I think assist, for to have an assist, your player also has to like finish well. But I think in general, Trossard makes a lot of chances just by making space for his teammates, the way he drops deep and takes opposition defenders with him, frees up space. Now, that does not come as an assist on paper, but he makes the team play well. And for 20 million, incredible signing, especially when guys like Richarlison, who is yet to score after, like I don't know, 20 appearances in the league, is going for 60 million. You have Mudrik, who could well be a good player, but he's not done anything of note yet going for a fee like 95 million. You have even a guy like Madhu AK, who's a young player. I get it. He has to adapt. 35, 40 million. 
to sign a Premier League proven player who has a hat trick at Anfield in the same season for the fee that we've paid incredible signing man and in hindsight I'll honestly tell you I don't know why the hell I was so angry that we missed out on Mudrik because we have an absolute baller in Trossard and I cannot wait for him to actually fully settle in with us because this is just a taste I think of what he can do can you imagine how good he's going to be for us next season this is a player we can trust play in the Champions League play in the Premier League he's going to be really good for us for the next 3 years Mikel Arteta masterclass I must say yeah and you know I'll I'll also raise my hand and say that I definitely underrated Trossard before he came to Arsenal you know when when we were initially linked with him in January I wasn't disappointed but you know the I I definitely I felt like we'd missed out on Mudrik right even though we'd been linked to him and then you know I think in the summer as well there were also links um you know between us and him and I remember basically saying that you know Trussard, good player, good tidy player, um, you know, creates some good, uh, some nice goals and scores as well, but I just don't think he'd fit, I don't think he's physical enough, yada, 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 stuff like that, and um, I'm happy to say I was wrong, he, he's come in and um, he's he's been truly excellent, he looks like he's been playing at Arsenal for years, and um, he's a player that suits our game plan down to a T, and um, I think the most important thing about him is that or you know at least right now is the effect that he's had on Gabriel Martinelli right because I think um you know ever since Jesus went out injured I think that's had a that's coincided with you know Martinelli's kind of dip in form um not registering a goal contribution for a few matches kind of seeming to be quite isolated out on the left you know uh, we were playing in Kedia there for a while, and I think in again did excellently. Um, you know, scored some really critical goals for us, had some uh, awesome performances, but there just wasn't a connection between him and Martinelli. And I think the calculation that Arteta and and Arsenal made is that you know there's there's two choices on the table: either we get the best out of Kedia or we get the best out of Martinelli. And I think you know, by signing Trussard and by deploying him as a false nine, you know, the the last few weeks, I think they've consciously made that decision to to choose to maximize what they have with Gabriel Martinelli over maximizing Enkedia. So, um, you know, that's what they've done. They've had Trussard, who I think pretty adequately at this point has replicated what we were missing with Gabriel Jesus. You know, he's able to drop deep. He is very fluid. He can swap positions with uh, with Martinelli, with Saka. Um, you know, he's a really intelligent player, uh, knows how to create chances, and, you know, can finish a few as well. Um, and as a result, you know, in our last five matches, Gabriel Martinelli has five goals. And I, I do not think that's a coincidence. I think Trussard's really... Um, you know, helped bring Martinelli back into the game. And I think it is kind of part of why we played so narrowly on Sunday, because, you know, you had Trussard starting at the nine, swapping places with Martinelli and bring Martinelli in a little bit. But I think also, you know, Trussard's someone who does like to operate on the interior. He's not a touchline winger per se. So, 
you know, I think he was also kind of taking up some spaces, um, you know, in and around zone, zone 14, maybe a little bit in the half space as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think he's just been terrific. And like you said, for the price that we got him looking at all the other players in his position or similar positions, um, have gone for, um, you know, absolute, absolute steal. And he has a goal and five assists now since he's arrived. And, you know, if it weren't for, if it weren't for, uh, Granite Xhaka, again, inexplicably missing that goal. And if it weren't for, um, pretty questionable decision against, um, Lester, I think it was, then, you know, we're talking about a guy who has eight goal contributions in about a month and a half, which, you know, I think is terrific. So really glad he's back. Um, was worried that, you know, we're going to be operating with, uh, something of a thin front line but now we have him back and um, I think we'll see him on Thursday as well and another player who I'm so so happy to see back is Gabriel Jesus Gabriel Jesus has risen Um, you know he's returned from basically the dead and Sashi he came on um, yesterday and you know he he played about 20 minutes at the end of the match and um I I I have my thoughts on how he looked but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you first how how did he look to you to be honest with you I'm not even exaggerating I didn't see a huge difference in how he played after being three months out versus how he was playing in November I think every touch that he had really had a purpose to it you know he He really wanted to get that goal yesterday. And you could see how frustrated he was uh, when he missed the chance. Um, But I was so happy to actually see that because I missed Jesus uh, missing these sitters. And I think a lot of fans as well were having a laugh when he missed that chance because (laughs) he's been missing some shocking chances right from October. And to see him continue to do that, but also play so well, I really missed that, to be honest. Like, he was incredible the energy he played with fantastic um and he he's just taken off i think from where he left in november and i think obviously he probably needs a little bit more rhythm just to feel like he's back to his best psychologically and i think that could take a few more games but purely looking at how he played fantastic i also think the game state was quite favorable for him to come on we were of course winning 3-0 i think there was like 15 minutes or so remaining and Fulham were obviously committing players forward, so he found a lot of space. But he was fantastic right from the time he came on. And I saw this tweet uh, that perhaps Jesus coming back could make Zinchenko play with the kind of calmness he was playing with in the first half of the season. Because obviously without Jesus, we lacked that little bit of that experience and know-how. I think even though Trossard is pretty good at this level, I just think Jesus has been in this Premier League run-in. He knows what it takes to win. He's played big Champions League knockout ties as well. So I think it really eases the burden of some of the other senior players. And so happy, man. He was fantastic. And I, I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing him start in midweek in the Europa League. Home match will be an amazing atmosphere, I'm sure. And the crowd can't wait to see him back. And yeah, we've really missed this guy. And I'm really proud as well of the team for coping without him because of how important he is for us. When he got injured, Arsenal were five points on top 
and once he's back we're still five points on top and i think we've played i think about 10 to 11 games if i'm not mistaken since he got injured so yeah i think we can be really proud of ourselves for actually coping without him finding solutions but now he's back and i'm so happy all we need now is for him to get that rhythm back which he will when he plays in the europa league he'll play in the weekend and then the international break comes so he has even more time and i think april 1st against leeds united at the emirates we're going to see uh, the real gabriel jesus back but really promising signs yesterday and yeah I'm, I'm so happy he's back so so happy yeah it was it was really exciting to see him come back on the pitch and i i think you make an excellent point about you know how how we should feel with him back having maintain the lead at the top of the table right because when he got injured we were up by five points and now when he's come back almost four months later we're still up by five points in first place which you know i i don't think that's a small feat i i think that that's a fantastic job done by the rest of the squad to you know to um to get by without maybe one of our best players so yeah and i think i think with jesus back having done that having you know maintained our lead at the top of the table i think that's going to be a really big boost for the rest of the team right i think some of those nerves are going to fall away because i think gabriel jesus kind of became something of a talisman for the team and you know definitely a big emotional leader for them so you know having him back having 11 games to go in the season having that five point lead intact and now, you know, you have your number nine um, back in action, already looking pretty good. Um, yeah, I, I think I think that's going to be such a big boost for the team. And, you know, in terms of Jesus himself, I, yeah, it didn't really look like he's been gone for a while, to be honest. He, he came in and he played at a really high intensity. He was in there, you know, um, knocking bodies about, uh, winning the ball, taking hits, charging up the, the pitch. You know, he had those really great, um, you know, kind of like flicks around the corner that, you know, we got so used to seeing him do. And I think he also put in a, a really good defensive shift. I, I remember there was one point late in the match where, you know, he basically just charged down the, I think it was our right flank to, you know, to help um, win the ball back. So, you know, I think um, I think that provides some insight as to why, you know, we've been hearing rumors about him being back since, you know, possibly the Leicester match. But I think Jesus is a guy who doesn't really take it easy on the pitch. I think there are some players, um, I think Sock has been doing this a little bit. Um, you know, there are some players who kind of manage their way through a game. You know, they don't um, they don't overexert themselves uh, every second that they're on the pitch. But I don't think Jesus really is a player like that. Um, so maybe that just prompted Arteta and the medical staff to, to hold him out. But, um, yeah, I think having him is going to be so important. And, um, our Arsenal also seemed to agree with that statement because they, I guess, were filming a documentary about his return from injury. Sash, have you seen this? Yeah, unreal, no, the trailer, I can't wait for it to come out, like, yeah. wow, it's going to be lit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, 
it was it was like watching a trailer for a Marvel movie. You know that that was um, yeah. that was how intense it was. So definitely look, definitely looking forward to watching that, and um, you know maybe maybe we'll chat about that on the pod at some point after it comes out. Um, but yeah, just just so great to have him back, and um, yeah, looking forward to uh, to seeing what he can produce for us down the stretch. But in addition to that, I think there is one more player for us to talk about from this game who you know, in a way, is back. I mean, he's he's been playing since the World Cup break, but I think up until a few weeks ago, he was showing his age a little bit. And um, I don't mean in an old way. I mean in a young way. And that's William Saliba. I think, I, I think going to Qatar and featuring with the French team, but not really playing that... I think he played... I think he came on as a substitute once um in the group stages and then kind of rode the bench for the rest of the tournament went to the final lost um and came back you know I think that's a big emotional drain I'm sure there's also some disappointment that came with that that he had to shake off because again you know Saliba is probably a player who for most of his career is so used to you know kind of being the guy or you know kind of being one of the best players in the room so to to have to take a back seat to you know Varane and Kanate, um, you know definitely might have bruised an ego. But my my point here is that you know he he returned to Arsenal and you know he was losing his aerial duels. He was making errors. Um, you know he was getting caught out a couple times for goals. So it wasn't the imperious, um, almost prodigious center back that we've expected and. I think in the last few weeks he's he's improved greatly on that and I think this performance against Fulham kind of you know capped off his return to form. Um Sash, what uh what did what did you think was the most impressive aspect of Saliba's performance against Fulham and do you agree that you know he's he's well and truly back at this point? Yeah, I completely agree. So actually, Saliba did this interview, I think it was around the 25th of Feb, where he was saying that he knows when he doesn't play well. And he said that he will be back to his best soon. So I think he kind of knew the reasons why he was not playing as well as he was at the start of the season. And like you said, it's also his first Premier League season. So I think like he, we have to be a bit patient. I think he himself said that it's his first season. So... There's going to be some ups and downs. But I really liked how commanding he was against Fulham. And perhaps the aspect of his game that impressed me the most was how he was on the ball. If you look at the build-up to the second goal, I think it was. Yeah, the second goal. He plays this pass with his left foot beautifully, wraps his feet around it and plays it to Shaka. Now, it's a really risky pass because that pass was played inside our own penalty box. And if it was not executed properly, it could have easily gone to a Fulham player who has just Ramsdale to beat. But the audacity the audacity and the bravery to actually try that kind of a pass and to pull it off and for it to lead to a goal, I think it just tells you like where he is at at this moment in time mentally. He's really playing with a great level of confidence, really imposing himself. I also have I also think we have to consider one more thing it's how demanding the center back role is uh, for Arsenal defenders and I think Gabriel and Saliba both of them 
they have so much space to cover at times in the defensive transition moments because sometimes Ben White is not back because he's overlapping. Zinchenko is all over the place. So sometimes it's really difficult for both of them to deal with these type of situations. And when we concede a goal, people are going to blame them saying, oh, they're bad. But I think people have to look at the bigger context here. They're playing an incredible role for us. I don't know how many centre-backs in the in the world who can play the role that they both are playing and that too at such a young age. So I think we really have to recognise how good both of them have been. And look, a lot of fans do Saliba propaganda. They have a chant for him, which is all nice. But I think in, amidst all of this, you cannot forget how good Gabriel has been for the team. I would go as far as saying that since the Premier League resumed in December uh, 25th, He's been the best centre-back in the Premier League since then. And I think Saliba definitely is helped by the fact that he has a guy like Gabriel next to him who's been in the league for a few years and he's actually playing at an incredible level of composure now. So I just think that trickles down to Saliba as well. And I think at the start of the season, we had moments where Saliba was really good and Gabriel was making the odd mistake. And I think that's what a partnership is about, that they help each other when one is not playing so good, the other covers for him and so on. And I really liked as well that even though we won against Leicester City, 1-0, uh, kept a clean sheet, they were kind of arguing with each other after the end of the game because of certain defensive situations. They both want the best for the team and they both are willing to fight every inch to help the team reach to where we want. So yeah, I'm really happy with Saliba. He's back. He's properly back. Physically, he looks amazing. Confidence-wise, really good. And we need his composure definitely in the last uh, 11 games of the season because I think that's his biggest strength. Despite his young age, he's calm, composed. He transmits uh, calmness, tranquility, whatever. And I think we're going to need that in the run-in. There we go. Um, you know, I was, I was also going to say that... Um that Saliba's most impressive part of his performance was um, that whipped ball out to Xhaka. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree. I think one of the one of the best aspects of Saliba is his calmness on the ball. And, you know, we've, we've seen this the entire season now where, you know, he gets pressed and he either just very calmly, you know, pings the ball forward, uh, you know, plays it between the lines or... He, you know, kind of dribbles his way out of pressure in a way, or at least he holds off, um, you know, an opposing player until someone gets open for him. Um, and yeah, like you said, it's such a it's such a calming presence to have someone who doesn't make, you know, that many bad decisions on the ball. And so yeah, that that ball out to Jaka, you know, again he and this is kind of where. This is what I, uh, I'm thinking about when I say that we exploited Fulham's press is that, you know, they came after Saliba when he had the ball and then he just turns, curls it out to Xhaka, really nice switch, and then Xhaka just goes straight down the pitch and um, we end up scoring our second goal. So, um, yeah, he's just such a terrific player on the ball and then off the ball as well. You know, he has that really deceptive pace about him. Again, you know, um, I think the aerial duels are something he needs to work on. Obviously, that's not quite his game, but um, that is that is something that um, I would love to see improvement in. But aside from that, you know, I think he's a, such a great tackler on the ball. He's quick. He's physical. 
Um, there's that one moment late in the match where, you know, he caught up with Dan James and tackled him from behind and just, you know, so um, smoothly just, you know, um, took the ball off Dan James, which I think was, you know, just a really good moment for him. And yeah, I think he and Gabrielle are probably the best center back partnership in the Premier League. Honestly, I, I, I don't really have any um, uh, any hesitation about saying that at this point, because I think they they are both such excellent center backs in their own right, and they're both pre-prime as well. Um, but on top of that, they complement each other so nicely, right? Saliba, um, yeah, Saliba, you know, in in a way, and um, you know, maybe it's still early days to compare them to these two, but in a way, they do kind of remind me of Colo Torre and Sol Campbell, right? Where you had Colo Torre, who you know was was the guy who was good with the ball, he was quick on the ground. Um, and, you know, he he was kind of the guy who, like, ran the show defensively in terms of the ground duels. And then Sol Campbell was just, you know, this big physical specimen who could win any, you know, obviously also won the ground duels, some ground duels as well, but also just in the air was absolutely imperious. And, you know, he was the guy who was built for war. Um, and I think those two paired together so nicely, obviously. Um, and I think Saliba and Gabrielle remind me a lot of that, where... You know, they're both really good defenders. Saliba's the guy who, you know, is probably a little bit more reliable with the ball. I think Gabriel's underrated in that aspect, but I think Saliba's definitely better. Um, you know, really good at ground duels and and um, generally just providing a calm presence at the back. But Gabriel is, you know, a machine at this point in terms of, you know, winning those physical battles, um, being excellent in the air. Um, generally just being combative enough where, you know, um, even big name strikers are going to have a hard time getting past him. And, um, you know, Gabrielle also went and scored a goal for us in this game, which I think, um, you know, just kind of highlights the fact that these two also can contribute for us going forward, excuse me, in terms of, you know, putting the ball in the back of the net. So yeah, they're just such, they're both such excellent players and, you know, in terms of them arguing after the 1-0 at Leicester, I think that just shows that they demand a lot of each other. You know, they, they expect high standards from one another. And, you know, I think that's a very healthy thing, um, generally speaking. So, um, yeah, you know, it's good to have Saliba back at his, um, you know, at, at the height of his powers. And I think we're going to need that, obviously, entering the final third of, of our season. So, yeah, we'll see. Um We'll see what else we, he has to contribute to, hopefully a title challenge. Or not a title challenge, but hopefully a title win. So, speaking of which, you know, this game, before we, you know, talk briefly about the sporting match last week, this game leaves us, um, you know, with 11 games to go. We currently have played 27 games, and... Sorry, I'm looking up the table right now because I've completely forgotten how many points we have. We have 11 games left in the league? I think we have 11, right? Yeah, yeah, we've yeah, played we 27, so we have 11 games left yeah. in the league and 66 points. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're, you know, kind of mapping this out. And we've we've obviously been doing this throughout the 
the entirety of the season. But with 11 games left, Sash, if you had to put a number on it, how many points do you think gets us the title? So I think personally that we need to win 28 games uh, to get that Premier League title. And right now uh, we are on 21 wins. So I think we need to win seven out of our remaining 11 games. Now, this is what I think is going to like, this is what I think it will take to win the league. Because for Man City to win 28 league games, they have to win nine out of their remaining 11 games. And look, I think Man City are really good. And I think they're coming into some level of form now. But they've actually never won more than three games in a row, even once this season. And if they're going to do it, it's going to be a first time when they beat Liverpool, then they would win four league games. So they're yet to do it. And they also have some tricky fixtures coming up. They have to obviously play us. They have to go away to Brighton. They have to go away to Brentford. They have to play Liverpool. They they also have to play Chelsea at home. So I don't think it's all plain sailing for Man City. They also have a tricky away game at Southampton and Fulham and Everton, Goodison Park. I'm not quite sure that they're going to win nine out of their remaining 11 Premier League games. But I can see Arsenal winning seven out of the remaining 11 games, absolutely. I can see us winning against Palace and Leeds, so that's two out of the way. I can see us winning at home against Southampton, so that's three. I mean, West Ham, if their form continues, I can see us winning that one as well, so that's four. Chelsea are really bad, and we play them off the park at Stamford Bridge. So I personally think we play them off the park at the Emirates as well. So that's five. And then we have home games against Brighton and Wolves. Let's say we even drop in one of them. That's six. Nottingham Forest away. I think Forest are a dreadful side. And with how good our away form is, I back us to win the game. So basically we have, I would not call it free hits, but I would say we could drop points, say, to Liverpool at Anfield. We could drop points against, say, Man City away from home, against Newcastle, we could drop points. And then we have that one extra home game we could drop points in. So basically, there's a lot of room, I think, for error for Arsenal. And currently, they're on 66 points. And winning seven more games gets you to 87 points. So I think 87 is the magic number this season. And for Man City to get to 87 points, they need to get about 27 points from their next um, 11 games, which is, again, nine wins. And I don't know if they're going to manage that. So, yeah, I I think hopefully we get through this run. I think it's looking really promising. I don't want to get ahead of myself. uh, But I think now that we are like 11 games, soon 10 games, I think it's a logical point in the season to actually have this conversation. And obviously in the coming week, Man City aren't playing and Arsenal are playing against uh, Palace, who are in dreadful form right now. So if we win that match, we go eight points ahead of City, who will have a game in hand. But still, points on board is better than games in hand. And if you're Man City, looking at the team above you being eight points ahead, and then you're facing Liverpool, it's a little bit daunting. But Man City are obviously really good. And if they do something out of the ordinary, but they go on this run of 10, 11 games, then I would say well-deserved. But personally, I don't think that's going to happen, especially with them having their eyes on the Champions League. 
very interesting next couple of months ahead. I don't know how my body is going to deal with the stress, but hopefully if we analyze it this way, where we need 28 wins and City also need 28 wins, it looks a bit more promising. And hopefully the listeners of the podcast can sleep well after hearing this. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I agree with you in terms of the number that we need. Um, I think 87 sounds about right. And, you know, as long as we have the players that we have fit, you know, I'm talking about, you know, guys like Jesus and, and Party and Saka and Sinchenko, as long as we have guys like that fit and available, I, I, I'm feeling really confident, you know, um, obviously City are an excellent team and like they can break off these, you know, these runs of wins um, you know, to win to win them the title, but you know, the matches that, that you've said here, you know, Fulham away, Brighton away, Brentford away, those are from for for my money, three of the toughest away trips in the league still left for them to do. Um and I have a sneaky feeling about Saturday as well against Liverpool. I just you know they're they're down two five to to Real Madrid. Um, they'll probably go for that, but you know it it doesn't feel as um, as attainable as you know I think City's tie against Leipzig is going to feel this week. And you know it's an early game. If Liverpool go out against Real Madrid after having lost to Bournemouth. I just think that team comes out very angry on Saturday. Um, and I, I think they do have the tools to um, to make things really difficult for City. Um, but, I mean, we'll see. It's it's probably it's probably likelier that City beat Liverpool. But my, my point here is, you know, it's it's not all sunshine and daisies for, for City for the rest of the, um, the season. So we've got some tough matches coming up. You know, City's going to be tough for us. I'm not looking forward to Newcastle away. I think that is going to be a really tricky fixture. Um, going to Anfield, I think, will be tricky as well. But, yeah, I, I kind of back us to do it at, at this point. Um, you know, I think, I think I've seen enough to be decently confident about that. So, you know, if we just have to win seven more games and it's... Um, it's wrapped up. I think. I think we can do that. Um, let's turn our attention real quick to the sporting match from last week before we take a break. And I, I guess. Um, I, I guess a couple main things to get from here is first of all that um, Jakub Kivior made his debut for the club, um, long awaited at this point. So, how do you think that debut went? Because I, I have kind of mixed feelings about it. Um, I think he showed some good things on the ball. I think defensively, I don't think his errors were like terrible. I think they were more like lack of coordination with his teammates. Like he left the ball on the corner kick thinking Turner would catch it. Obviously, that didn't happen. And... This is coming at a time when Arsenal have had like set piece issues. 
In addition to this, I think for the second goal we conceded, he doesn't exactly track the runner, but there's also another Arsenal player tracking him. So I just think that the goals he conceded, like the errors he made, were down to him not knowing our teammates well enough. And I don't think I'm so concerned that it's some issue with him. You also have to consider one more thing that he's not even played a single minute with the main team. He's only trained with them. And to go on a difficult like away ground like sporting, it's not easy at all. So I could completely understand like his performance. You also have to understand we didn't have party on the pitch. Our midfield was a bit light for my liking. Uh, with Jorginho and Shaka, like I like both of them individually. I just think when they play together, they're a bit more open. And I think the defenders had a lot of work to do. And I don't think Kivior has ever played in a team with this much like required from a defender, like playing that high line and and like basically covering those spaces to like deal with those three v two situations, which happens quite a lot of times. So I think he dealt with those reasonably okay. Obviously, the errors put a dampener on a decent display. But honestly, he's such a young defender. So I personally think we shouldn't be reading so much into this. He needs to play a run of games. He needs to play a preseason. He's shown some good qualities on the ball. And Arteta has obviously identified this guy as a really good player. And a lot of people in Italy also say the same thing, that he's one of the best talents to come out with Serie A. So we should give him time. We should let things play out. He's going to be, I think, a good player for us, a good backup to have for Gabriel. And I think he, just like maybe even Fabio Vieira, they could really do, I think, with a proper preseason um, for Arsenal. But I do think Vieira, you could see that initially when he was playing, he was struggling, he was giving the ball away. But you could see what rhythm does to a player. He's playing more with his teammates and getting used to it and has been a lot better in his recent matches. So I think that's the case for Kivyar as well because from a defensive point of view, it's all about partnerships and he's not, he's not really established that partnership with anyone as of yet. So I would just say don't read too much into it and give him time, give him a run of games and I'm sure he'll come good. Yeah, you know, he... He struck me as being a little, little scared, a little nervous. Um, yeah, exactly. which you know, yeah, and you know that's that it's natural. But um, yeah, it it wasn't great. But I think there's a lot of factors going into it. Like you said, um, you know, there's there's one thing that summer signings get that January signings do not, which is time, right? You have time to come in and bet into the team, uh, at least feature in a preseason, um, you know, get up to speed of, with everybody, develop relationships, um, you know, kind of um, learn the tactics a little bit more, um, adapt to, you know, the playing style and the players around you. For for players who come in midway through the season, like Kivior did, you don't really get that time. You know, you come in mid-season, Things are already in full swing. Um, you you need to you need to hit the ground running. That's the expectation, um, and that that expectation is only heightened during a season in which the team you've arrived at is in the midst of a title challenge. So, you know, key viewers had to come in, and that's probably why we hadn't seen him until the sporting match because he had to come in. He had to have that time. He had to you know again kind of learn 
learn the tactics and adapt to the team that he's arrived at, which is why we saw him playing U21 game, and he looked excellent in it. Um, and there's also, you know, rumors of him breaking um, breaking records in training, um, you know, like speed records and um, running records, things like that. So, yeah, I, I think that's one thing to keep in mind. And also, you know, just to kill two birds with one stone about um, in terms of how I feel about this match, I, I think Turner really threw him off, you know, um, Turner struck me as being pretty shaky in this match. The nerves were back, um, you know, for, for Sporting's first goal, it, you know, it looked like Kivior ducked under the ball. And I think he did that because Turner was going, Turner basically indicated that he was going to come out for the ball and then he didn't. So, you know, I think that's a little bit more on Turner than it is on Kivior and, you know, generally... I, I think a goalkeeper transmits their you know their their energy their vibe you know out to the 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 back line in front of them and that that has an impact on how confidently your defenders are going to play and I think Turner's vibe was not at all reassuring and for Kivior coming into this team for the first time and you know Sure, you've got Saliba on one side and you've got Zinchenko on the other, but Zinchenko's halfway up the pitch a lot of the time. Um, you only have Jorginho in front of you. Um, and Jorginho, again, good player, but he's not this hyper-press-resistant, mobile, physical player that Party is. So, you know, I think I think that really did impact his performance as well. But speaking of the midfield, I was also pretty concerned about that, and... You know, the, the midfield deployed originally was Jorginho, Vieira, and Xhaka. And I think one thing that I really noticed immediately about that midfield is that they can't cope with with the counter, right? They were um they weren't getting out muscle, but they were definitely getting outrun at times, overrun, and sporting were just coming right down the pitch and it didn't really seem like, you know, those three had much to deal or much to to offer in terms of dealing with them. Obviously, on the ball, they're all great. But, you know, Jorginho um, isn't a great defender, not particularly mobile. Xhaka, good defender, still not that mobile, and he's playing eight now. Um, Vieira hasn't really developed the, the defensive side of his game. So um, do you have those same concerns about that midfield, and is that something that you'd like to see changed on Thursday? Yeah, personally, like I said, I feel like Jorginho and Xhaka, they're not really compatible. Like in midfield, you could play one of them, but not both. I think one solution, though, is since we can't like risk Thomas Party in a Europa League game, I think a solution to this would be to play Smithrow as the right central midfielder, because I think Smithrow has more of a defensive intensity to him than Vieira. I think Smithrow is more of a runner than Fabio Vieira is. So what I would look to do is perhaps play Fabio Vieira out wide, play Smithrow as a right central midfielder so that Jorginho has that runner next to him because I think that's what he needs. And even when he won the Champions League with Chelsea, he had N'Golo Kante next to him to cover for some of his defensive deficiencies. Now, I'm not saying ESR is Kante, but I think the aim is to have a person who can run next to him because in these counter-transition moments, you need players that can run. And if Smithrow is in a good level of fitness, I'm sure he can do that. And I've said this quite a while as well, that Smithrow's best position is to play as the right central midfielder. I think that's why he plays 
at his best. His best actions come when he's like linking up, usually with Saka down the side. But I think obviously since it's a Europa League game, we can't test Saka. So we either play Vieira or we play Nelson out wide. So this is my solution to it. I don't think we have a perfect solution, but I'm sure in the summer, once we buy some basmati rice in the transfer market, some of these issues will be reduced because I think that's what we're missing at the moment, that extra midfield option who can play, who can run. So, yeah, I think we, we it'll be fine in the summer. But for now, I think a temporary fix is to probably play Smith throw over there. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. Um, and I think... I think now is the moment for Smith Rowe to to show that he has something to to contribute. You know, obviously he's been out through injury and um, you know, his he's kind of been displaced a little bit in the squad. And you know, now you have the kind of the return of Nelson, you have the you know, the the impressive rise of Tressard since his arrival from Brighton. Um and then you already have Martinelli there. So that's kind of left wing, I think, kind of blocked off for Smith Rowe at this point. Um, unless he proves to be a better option than at least the first two. Um, yeah, so I, I do think there is something to consider when it comes to deploying him as an eight. So that'll be that'll be really interesting to see what we do on Thursday. But um, final thing before we call it for part one. How motivated do you think we should be to win the Europa League and what kind of lineup do you think we should deploy on Thursday? Look, I think any trophy is good, but I don't know if you can resonate with this as well, but like when we went 2-1 down on Thursday against Sporting, I didn't really feel anything, you know, like obviously I don't like to see us conceding goals, but somehow my heart is just not in this competition. Like, it's Europe's second string competition. It's a competition we've been playing since, I think, 2017. And I just can't wait for us to get out of it. And I don't have a huge motivation to win it. But if we win it, obviously, I'll be happy that we won like a European competition. But if I'm to be very honest with you, Sham, like I don't feel so invested in it. And I hope the players don't feel that way because I think it's important for us to win every game just from a momentum point of view because I think in um, the start of January, the start of Feb, we basically bin the FA Cup and once we lost against Man City, we went on to drop points in the next three Premier League games when we were already on a winning run. So personally, I wouldn't want to disturb that. But if you're asking me really from the competition point of view, nah, I would not like lose too much sleep say if we got knocked out like i think we have much bigger fish to fry to be honest i think that's immensely understandable um you know we all talk about how painful baku was for us and for me it wasn't painful in the sense that um you know we lost a cup final or we lost to chelsea it was painful that a return to the champions league was right there and we lost it to a team that was already in the Champions League. Um, and that, that kind of was a a uh, sliding doors moment for how much I believed in that Arsenal team. But we don't really have that problem now. You know, we, we'd, we'd have to collapse in um, 
in utterly pathetic fashion at this point to not make the Champions League. So, you know, I'm not looking at Europa League as um, as useful in that way anymore. And again, you know, I, I agree with what you said in terms of it's it's the second tier of, of, of European competition. I If we win the Europa League, it's not really something I'm, I'm running around bragging about um, in terms of being a European trophy. Because that's not that's not the European trophy that everyone wants. Um, so, I think for me, the only purpose the Europa League serves at this point really is to keep our squad options um, fit and fresh and and ready to contribute in the event anything were to happen to you know the first twelve to thirteen players. Um, you know, in and around that first team. So, like, guys like Turner and Tomiyasu, um, I, I guess Kivior's on that list now, Tierney, Jorginho, Vieira, Smith-Rowe, Nelson, Trussard, Inkedia. Um, I'm surely forgetting someone, but, you know, guys like that, that's that's who I want featuring in this team. That's That's who... I still think the Europa League can be useful for because they can then go out and play still pretty high level um, competition, uh, high level opposition. You know, Sporting is no team to to scoff at, um, so you can roll out those guys, and you know, with a couple starters, um, just to you know to keep things ticking and to keep those guys um, with minutes in their legs. But yeah, I I I don't want us to throw it. And I still think we should try, but if we go out of the Europa League on on Thursday, I'm not going to be particularly devastated. So you know, that's um that's where I am with it, and um I think that's a good place to leave uh, part one, and um we'll take a break, and uh, in part two we'll come back with listener questions. So we'll talk to you right after this. And we're back. So, again, like I said, part two of the show, we're going to take some listener questions about a variety of different topics. Um, and Sash and I will t- take turns uh, reading those off. And, uh, yeah, we'll give our answers to those. So, uh, Sash, do you want to start us off? Yeah. I'm just going to go through the questions now and pick one to read. Um so my question is going to come from Den. You can find him on Twitter at DenRice11. Thank you so much, Den, for the weekly questions. We love your questions and we appreciate you asking such interesting questions that really make us think and debate. So the question from Den is, maybe Arsenal should lose in the Europa League in order to prevent injuries and excessive fatigue of the players. I think this is a bit related to what we discussed where, uh, Sham, you perfectly said that you could view Europa League as a competition for playing some of our squad players. Like, I think both of us want to win it, but I think we don't want to win it to the extent where we play our first team players. So, yeah, I think I think I don't want us to lose from that point of view. I don't want us to bin the competition, but I also don't want to play our best players, you know. So, yeah, I think there is a middle ground here between going all in and throwing it away. 
which is playing some of like your sub players and as you said sham i think that's what even arteta is doing so yeah i wouldn't throw it away personally do you also see it the same way yeah i mean i don't uh, again you know i don't think it's ever a good look to to throw away a competition and i don't think that's the mentality that Mikel Arteta would want to instill in the squad, right? Um, I don't think you ever want to send players out on a pitch and tell them anything less than, you know, it would be really disappointing if we if we didn't win this match, right? Um, that's the that's the level we want to be at. But you know, we're we're competing for a title, and it's the first time in quite a while that we've been that we've done that, and you know, to to be. Um, I guess a realist at, uh, at this point in time, you know, you have city who I think is just, uh, unless, unless this, um, unless those financial charges turn into anything, you know, they're going to be around for the foreseeable future. They're going to be spending as much money as they like on, on players, bringing the best ones in. They're going to have Pep Guardiola for as long as he wants to be there. Um, you know they're gonna they're gonna be there. They're gonna be um, in the hunt every single year, and then you have Newcastle, who I think are joining those ranks, um, and I think they're doing it at a faster rate than I initially inspect, uh, expected. Um, United appear on the verge of being acquired by basically Qatar, so you know not only are you injecting more money into already one of the biggest budgets in football, but now you might be getting some people who actually know how to spend that money and, you know, might tell um, Eric Sevenhag that you can't buy, you know, some useless winger from the Dutch league for 100 million euros, right? They're going to be spending it effectively and efficiently. Um, so you have those three. Chelsea, I think, could be could uh, could feature pretty pretty quickly down the line with the with the amount of talent they've acquired. What what I'm getting at here is that you know, this is our best chance in a while to win the title because it's just us and City right now. And you know, everyone has kind of either been in a down year or a rebuilding year or haven't really hit that that um that title competitiveness yet. So I, I think we really have to be focused on winning it this time around because it's not going to be, it's going to be way harder than this next time and probably the year after, right? We're really going to have to pick our moments. Yep. Um, yeah, like for at least the next decade. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't want to risk that. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's my take on it. Um, so next question is, Sorry, I closed out of the Twitter app for some reason. Okay. So I'm going to read two questions because they they both have to do with the same thing. Um, and we'll just combine that. The first question is from AK Arsenal at AK Arsenal News. And he asks, what is Arteta's intentions with Pepe? And why do I have, a, have the feeling that he still has a future? And then Oluwa at underscore Oluwa underscore underscore asks, should Pepe be given a chance to prove himself next season? Uh, no. Next question. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a very easy answer, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I like Pepe and, um, you know, I think, I think he is after, after all of this, I do, I do still think he's an underrated player, but the problem with Pepe is, is fit, right? Um, yep. and Sash, I, you know, I, I know you say this a lot and I'm very much in alignment with this policy, which is talent is very, very important in this game, but fit is more important. And yep. Pepe did not fit into this team ever. Um, you know, I, I think he'd be excellent at Everton. Actually, I think he'd be terrific at Crystal Palace. Um, yep. you know, e- even United, I, I think he would have <laughs> killed for United. The teams that basically sit back and play hoofball, you think? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, because, like, you know, he he's really good at the aerial duels. Um, you know, we, we saw um, from his time, um, I think it was at Lille, before we acquired him, he, you know, he was a demon on the counterattack. But the problem yep. is... Pepe cannot play a possession-based game, right? And we've we've tried and we've tried and we've tried and we've tried. And, you know, he's a guy who comes on the pitch and makes things happen, but he's not he's not consistent. Um he doesn't have the same footballing IQ um as, you know, a lot of our players do at this point. Um and yeah, I I just don't think he fits into this team well enough to to help take it to the next level. I think, I think we need someone who can, you know, um, pretty consistently win take-ons who, you know, um, is smart enough to kind of take what's given to them in terms of the game. I think we need someone who's on the same wavelength as guys like Odegaard and Vieira and Jesus and Trussard. Um, and Pepe just doesn't really strike me as being that guy. And he doesn't seem happy at the club anyway. I think he's having a pretty... From as I remember it, he's having a pretty good season in Liga. So, you know, I think this summer we're just going to accept the L and, you mm-hmm. know, sell him for 20 million euros maybe um, and, and just kind of close that chapter um, in our player recruitment. But, Sash, what's, what's your take? Yeah, I completely agree with everything that you just said. There's just one more thing I would like to add to everything, and that's his defensive intensity. I think that's something that Arteta has never liked about Pepe because he's not as committed in the duels, not so motivated to consistently track back. It's not that he can't do it. There have been games he's done it, but he's not doing it week in, week out. And he's a player that really likes to play close to goal. He doesn't like to receive the ball on the touchline. And whilst he he has really good technical quality, I'm not denying that, but technical quality includes many things. It's not just your passing. It's not just your shooting. I think his touches are not very good, especially when you ping a diagonal. He's not someone that takes the cleanest of first touches. And I think these are little details that frustrate Arteta because you need to be able to protect the ball. You need to be able to collect the ball when it's played to you without the ball, like, flying like yards away from you i think that's very basic element of football pepe does some of the more complex things well like maybe shooting like he can shoot really well from distance he has a good cross in him he can ping those uh crosses like you've seen him doing to Aubameyang. and i like pepe to be honest like he won us an fa cup he gave the fa cup final winning assist to Aubameyang. so like he'll always have like my respect 
But I think now the time has come for both the club and for the player to just move on. I think he's doing pretty well on loan in France. And like you said, he could play for a team like Palace, Everton, United. <laughs> or he could maybe even just stay in France. But I think between Arsenal and Pepe, it's definitely time to move on. And what I'm hoping for is that like, we can get a good fee for him because that is important. We have to sell some players this summer. We've not made any big player sales recently. So I think he could be a potential cash cow for the club this summer. And I'm pretty sure that he will be sold. So on that note, I would read my second question. Um, and this comes from Rohan Naidu. You can find him on Twitter at TekkenRako2C. He says, should Martinelli play as a false nine if Jesus and Enketia are not starting rather than have an out-and-out striker? That's an interesting question. Um, I think the thing with Arsenal and the way Martinelli plays with Trossard is that they rotate a lot. I don't know if you can call Martinelli a number nine based on that. It's hard to even say what position Martinelli is playing because it changes every two minutes. And since you asked me that if Jesus and Enketia are not st starting, I would play Trossard like where he's playing to have Trossard collect a lot of those balls um, in zone 14, as Sham likes to say, and play it to Martinelli, you know, and to have that combination going throughout the match. And that's, that's, that's how I would like to build the team the way it is right now. Uh, but if Trossard is also not available, then I think the obvious solution is to play Martinelli down the middle. The only issue is that we don't have another player who can rotate with him. So he's kind of fixed down the middle. And there are maybe certain aspects of his game that need further refinement when he's playing down the middle. But having said that, I would definitely say that Martinelli is a striker for the future, like an out-and-out centre-forward. I think it's a matter of time. And I think maybe in a couple of years, you will see him playing there. But for now, to answer your question, I would just keep things the way they are. Play Trossard down the middle and then Martinelli playing off him, rotating with him. I think I love that dynamic. And you could also see that Trossard, when we are playing in build-up, he's the one receiving the ball. But in the final third, it's Martinelli in the box and Trossard crossing to him. So I would just keep the rotations this way because it's a nightmare for defenders to deal with. You know... Um... Sometimes when I casually drop zone 14 in conversation, someone's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, one time I was like arguing with my one of my little brother who's a Liverpool fan. I, I forget which player we were arguing about, but I said something to the effect of, you know, and also like, you know, he likes to pick up the ball in zone 14 and, you know, pull the strings <laughs> from there. And my brother's like, what's zone 14? And I was like, it's the square directly in front of the middle of the opposing penalty box. Um, so for anyone who's confused about what that term means, that's what that means. Um, okay. So by the I'm, way, by the way, yeah. sorry to cut you off. I also no had worries. to Google it the first time you said zone 14. I was like, wait, what the hell is this guy saying? And then I had to Google it and now I learned something, but that's, I think the best part about doing the pod, you have always new things to learn, not just from each other, but also from the listeners with the questions they ask. So Yeah. We learn something new every day, don't we? Hundred percent, hundred percent. I think I think this is what I get for um, just kind of 
spending a lot of time with like tacticos and in discords <laughs> the last couple of years yeah um <laughs> yeah <laughs> So the next question is uh, from my friend AJ, who you can find on Twitter. I have no idea how to pronounce um, that handle, but it's Jabari Link backwards. Um, So his question is, question for the next pod or article. Thoughts on trying to convert Tavares into a winger as a Saka backup? Um, So I'm I'm on lone player watch this this week, but... Um, you know, Tavares, I'm kind of in a similar camp with Tavares as I am with Pepe in that I just don't think the fit is there. Um, again, I, I think Tavares is, you know, a really good player. He's, you know, been impressive for, for Marseille at times this season, but I, um, one of, one of my closest friends is a, is a pretty devout Marseille fan, um, and, you know, there have been times where he's just messaged me and been like, Sham, please take Tavares back. Um, you know, he's he's been a bit of a liability in, in, in defense for them. I think he's had some errors leading to goal for them. You know, the, the, the goals he scored have been great. Um, but it's pretty clear at this point that I don't think that or it's pretty clear at this point that he can't really operate at at left back for us. So. In, in terms of him playing as a right wing, um, you know, I, I think you do have um, that 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 kind of two-footed ability from him that, you know, we often complain that Tierney didn't have last season. You know, he's physical, he's fast, um, you know, he, he ticks those boxes. But again, it's it's the technical level, you know, um, I don't I don't think he has a good first touch. Um, I don't think he's particularly um, good in terms of creating chances. You know, obviously he can do it, but I think if you're operating from right wing, you know, I think you have to be a little bit more surgical than Tavares is. And on top of that, you know, again, I don't think he has that same IQ. Um, I don't think he wants to be at Arsenal anymore, by the way. Um, You know, a lot of these sound bites from him, that have come out over the course of the season have kind of indicated as much. Um, so yeah, I I personally would try to see. I don't think Marseille is going to be interested in him after the season, but I personally would try to see if there are any takers for him because I think in the right hands, you know, you you basically have um, to you know in terms of profile, I think you have um, an Adama Traore kind of player. Um, you know, like, again, like super fast, super physical player, um, who can contribute going forward, but yeah, um, I, I just don't think he fits our needs. And, you know, I think guys like Zinchenko and Tomiyasu kind of indicate as much. And, um, yeah, I, I think we're going to make a, a, a big signing at that right wing position or maybe at, at left wing, some, some, some sort of impressive wide forward. And I just don't think Tavares is going to, is going to, um, cut it for us in terms of that but Sash what's your take yeah I mean I completely agree with what you said um I just want to also add that if you don't want to defend as a defender you're definitely not going to defend if you play as a winger and if that's one if there's one thing we know about Arteta it's that he wants his wingers to defend properly and I think Tavares as a player is just too erratic and I think 
his start at Marseille has basically mirrored his start with Arsenal where he starts off and everyone thinks he's the second coming of Roberto Carlos and by the end of the season people have had <laughs> enough of him you know and I think Arteta has also had enough of Tavares I don't think he particularly like wants him to continue at the club uh, also based on the sound bites so I don't see a future for Tavares at Arsenal it'll be quite interesting to see where he goes whether he stays at Marseille or not at one point in the season when he was scoring goals for fun with Marseille playing that advanced role I thought maybe we can fetch a really good fee for him but now that he's reverted back to his uh end of season form so as to speak I think I think we're not going to get like a massive fee but definitely I think he's a player we should look to ship out it's simply not worked he has some good ingredients I'm not going to deny that but I just think he has a long way to go I think in terms of his application to do it well because football is about how you you're able to do it over 38 games it's not about starting well playing well for 3 4 games and then and then just switching off so yeah I think he has to I think look at himself first because he's a player with attributes who's not playing anywhere close to his potential so yeah he needs I think more like time playing somewhere else and I hope from his point of view that he finds a club that is the right fit for him that can bring out the best version of him week in week out so yeah I'll be interesting to see what happens with him yeah and just just like a final point on him if you know if we sell him in the summer that's not necessarily a failure you know we signed him for 8 million pounds so if we sell him for double that that's a win you know and you know sometimes um so, sometimes having or let me let me rephrase it like this a win isn't always necessarily a player going on to be super successful with you sometimes a win is just mm-hmm. you know taking a punt on someone it not working out and you getting a profit off of them and you know yep. we'll take those too yep. yeah that's a really good point i think because like every player is contributing to the first team whether directly or indirectly and if we sell him we're going to reinvest that money on someone else and it will improve the first team so i really like that point it's also something mertesacker said about the academy that the whole purpose of the academy is to serve the first team so a guy like eddie and ketia if he gets sold for 30 million and say we replace him like with some talented upcoming winger the academy has done its job it's produced a player who has indirectly produced another player for the first team so yeah i really like that way of thinking and it'll be interesting to see what we do with him and on that note i'm going to ask my last question it's from br b r u h uh, i'm not even going to attempt to read his at because it's got some horrible words in that but he asks <laughs> <laughs> but he asks us what do you want to happen with tavares pepe lokonga and maitland niles um i personally would sell all four of them you know and i think it's just a question of how much money we would make on each player i think lokonga perhaps might be loaned another time not because arsenal think he can make it at the club but because they want to maximize his value he's obviously got some ingredients he's doing quite well at palace i was watching the game against city my god they are absolutely shit and he's the only player that has any semblance of composure on the ball so i think he's already a superstar over there so it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens with him but sham i just wanted to ask you as well i'm quite sure that you also view it in a similar way the futures of tavares pepe lokonga and maitland niles 
I just wanted to ask how much do you think we could make if we sell like maybe all four of them or three of them like what do you think will happen here Oh boy um I'm I'm just coming up with some numbers and adding them up real quick So I I think I think Pepe you could get a French team to pay 20 million euros for him um I think obviously that would take some finagling but I think you could hit 20 million Tavares I don't I Tavares is interesting um cuz I think that much much like um much like you get with the player himself I think there's a pretty wide range of outcomes that you can get in terms <laughs> of his price <laughs> yeah. um so you know I, I I could see anything from like 5 million euros to uh, 20 um I think mm-hmm. I think it just depends on who's interested in him um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I will say this might be a weird take, but I will say, I, you know, I, I think it's pretty likely that Rafael Leao leaves AC Milan this summer. And I think Pepe would be an interesting option for AC Milan, but, um, that's just me. Um, and again, I don't really know how mm-hmm. I haven't watched enough of AC Milan to sit here and say, I think Pepe would fit pretty, you know, wonderfully with them. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we'd lucky. I think we'd be lucky to get fifty million between the four of them. I'll just put it like that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, again, we we've already talked about kind of the shortcomings of Pepe and Tavares, Sambi. I think that's well documented in terms of you know very lovely player on the ball, not great off of it. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I think the fact that he looks so good at Palace is, you know, partially a testament to how good we are at finding good loans for our players. But also I think it's um, it's an indication of how surprisingly bad Patrick Mira, Patrick Vieira's midfield is, um, yep. which I think is a yep. little weird. And I think Maitland Niles has basically ruined his career at this point. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that. Um, you know, I think he had an opportunity to be kind of um the James Milner for us you know that that kind of every position utility player um you know that we could just throw in up and down the pitch and he would play it at a pretty high level and I think he I think he had very unrealistic expectations of his ability in other positions and I think he's bet on himself and bet too much um so I think I don't think we'll see Maitland Niles again in an Arsenal shirt and um Honestly, I'm not sure we'd see him again in the Premier League, to be quite honest. So, um, yeah, I I think his contract expires, right, this summer? Or does it expire next summer? I think it should expire this summer, if I'm not wrong. So I don't actually think we make money for him, unless there is some clause in his contract which maybe allows Arsenal uh, to extend it that we don't know about. I'm actually just checking it right now. And yeah, his contract, you're right, his contract expires on the 31st of May. So yeah, he's a free agent, so I don't see Arsenal obviously extending his contract, which is a bit disappointing because a few years ago, we had a 20 million plus bid rejected that that was made by Wolves. And I was actually watching some of Maitland Niles' old clips like a few days back, not particularly for watching him, but I was just watching some old match highlights. And he had so much potential as a fullback and... Like you said, I just think he made some very poor career choices which have come to bite him back. And yeah, I, I like the player, obviously, because he's from Hale and he's been there 
in like our FA Cup success as well. So I just hope he gets the right move um, that works out for him, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, I you know, I wish him all the best. Um, you know, again, he is a really good player when when he wants to be. But um, yeah, I think Arteta would love to have that 20, 25 million pound bid from Wolves back because I think he'd accept it <laughs> this time around. So, uh, yeah, I'll, um, I'll go ahead and read one last question before we get out of here. Mm-hmm. And that question, I think, I think we'll do from, um, ta- oh, Tau, <laughs> Taufik, Tau, I'm so sorry. I don't know how to pronounce this, but, um, T-A- he's at T-A-O-P-H-Y-C underscore A-F-C. And they ask, with what we've seen this season, what's Arsenal's starting front three? And I think that's a very understandable question, um, you know, because we've seen Trussard come in and be nigh on undroppable at this point, right? I think... I think in different circumstances, uh, Arteta would feel very compelled to to let Trussard have his place for you know as long as he can keep up these kinds of performances. And you know yeah. we've seen Nelson come in and suddenly be a factor, um, you know, late season for us. With all that being said, I think it's still Saka, Jesus, Martinelli. Um, I think those are the three most talented attacking players that we have. I think those three uh, those three players fit together the best, right? Trossard is a very close second to Jesus, but I think Jesus just has that extra bit of quality, that extra bit of aggressive that um, aggression and physicality that Trossard doesn't mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, you know, we already you know we've 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 talked so much about how Jesus and and Martinelli combined. I think Jesus also has been really good for Saka as well. Um, I think it's just a testament to how good Saka is that he's been able to to figure it out without without Jesus around. But yeah, that's our starting front three is exactly the same as it was on the first day of the season. And um, that's not to say that, you know, the alternatives aren't good. I think they've proved opposite, but <laughs> we're just different quality with those three out on the pitch. So there's so much individual ability that, you know, each of them can win a match for you with. Um and yeah, I, I I think it's those three. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you there. But I also think one more possibility, potential possibility. I actually saw someone put this out on Twitter and I found it quite interesting. So if Arsenal are chasing a game, we have the chance to bring someone like Trossard off the bench. And because Gabriel Jesus and even Trossard for that matter, they work really hard off the ball. You could perhaps take out one of the midfielders i'm looking at shaka so i think jesus or trossard they can operate in that left half space and because they're so good off the ball getting into the box i think it almost becomes a front four from a front three and i think they can give us something very different but overall i agree with your point about like our front three reverting to what it was in fact i can't wait for us to be back after the international break because our best starting 11 can finally play together I think after so many months, I think the last time we had the best starting 11 that we could play was, I think it was before October. So 
The 11 I'm talking about is Ramsdale, Ben White, Saliba, Gabriel, Zinchenko, Partey, Xhaka, Odegaard, Jesus, Saka, Martinelli. I think this team is incredible. I think they've played about seven games and won all seven. I think we have like, I don't know, something close to 20 goals and we conceded something like four or five goals. So I can't wait for that team to come back after the international break. And I also can't wait for our old front three to return. Yep. Yep. hundred percent. God, I, I felt shivers down my spine when you read out that, that 11. It's so good. With the video. Have you seen that video with the music playing as the camera scans on each player? I think this was like around the Emirates Cup time with that music. It was like, oh my God, goosebumps, honestly. Yeah, I, I, I think I did watch it at the time, but I don't remember it that well. So I'll have to, I'll have to go find it. But um, yeah, I mean, imagine having all those guys back together just in time for you know the very business end of the season. Oh, it's gonna Fasten be great. Your seat belts. Fasten your seatbelts. Fasten your seatbelts. It's gonna be magical. Uh, get out the popcorn. Um, and yeah, just just uh, just hold on tight. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll go ahead and leave it there for for this episode um, before we all get too excited. And um, you know, once again, thank you, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for letting Sash and I uh, hang out in your ears for <laughs> for as long as we have. And um, by the way, uh, you know, um, I'll, I'll just go go ahead and say this first. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Shamsdale. Uh, you can follow Sash on Twitter at LT Arsenal. You can follow the pod on Twitter at This Week Arsenal. And by the way, thank you for uh, helping the pod reach 100 followers. Uh, up next is... Woo! Up next is 500. Let's do 500. Um, but yeah, um, thanks so much for being here. And, um, you know, we had a lot of fun chatting about this. And we'll be back next week with another episode of This Week in Arsenal. And hopefully we'll be talking about uh, wins at home to Sporting and a victory at home to Palace. So we'll talk to you then. Until then, take care.